the incomparable. Number 284, January 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. Uh, we're going to talk about... It. This is a show that uh, I've been meaning to talk about on the, on the Incomparable for a long time, and we finally got around to it, mostly because on January 24th, 2016, uh, Fox is going to be airing a six-episode revival of the uh, classic uh, 90s TV show, The X-Files, which was always one of my favorites. And I thought this would be a good time to revisit it before whatever happens with the revival happens. So it's timely, sort of. Uh, as timely as a podcast about a show from the 90s could be. So we're going <laughs> to talk about The X-Files, Malter, Scully, Black Oil, Alien Bounty Hunters, Stupid Mythology, The Lone Gunman, all of that, with uh, three fine panelists. David J. Lore, hello. Hello, it's me, Mulder. Uh, Krychek, is that you? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Erica Ensign is also out there uh, in Canada, where the first five years of the show were made. Yes, you, on behalf of Canada, you're welcome. Yeah, thanks. So the good ones. Thanks. <laughs> there's, a, there's a hilarious moment in one of the episodes that we watched for this, uh, that uh, where there's a minor part that is supposed to be some American and the the guy's got the most um like stereotypical canadian accent ever and and i thought why why did you not like coach him a little bit on we don't say that wow but, i must have been living here for a long time cuz i didn't even notice that he was a total that. canadian plant it was one of those <laughs> one of those canadians moments that i have on those shows that are made in vancouver as the x files was until david duchovny said i'd like to move back to la please and they said, yes, sir, Mr. Star of a TV show. Uh, John Syracuse also joins us. Hi, John. You take that back about the mythology episodes. <laughs> I will not. But we'll you take I guess it back should, now. I guess we should get into that at some point here because I, 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 so, I selected four episodes for us to watch. You'll note that none of them have <laughs> anything to do with the overarching mythology of the show. Uh, but instead are uh, Monster of the Week-ish sort of episodes. Actually, David selected one of them. I, I put out a whole bunch of episodes that were very similar, and David suggested a different episode that I didn't even remember. So we watched Beyond the Sea from the first season. We watched Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, which I believe is from the third season. We watched Bad Blood, which is from the fifth season, and we watched Triangle, which is from the sixth season season so we tried to spread it out a little bit and that was a that was the assignment i watched a few others i will admit once i started watching them i was like i actually i watched uh i just wanted to see the beginning of humbug and i watched the whole damn thing uh and i watched a few others too so um before we get uh started revisiting the content here I, i'm curious what your uh, all your relationships to the x-files was in terms of um watching it when it's on and how you felt about it when it was on uh so the, it's the go back in time a little bit david what's your what's your story with the x-files well you know right at the beginning i kind of avoided it because i'm not all that into you know scary monsters spooky shows and that, there were a lot of those at the time but they were all you know it's like friday the 13th the series and you know all those kind of things and i was like eh. and it premiered I think it premiered at the same time as The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. So that was like Fridays at 8, and this was right after it. And I was like, ooh, I'll watch the sci-fi comedy western, and then I'll go do something else. And then I met my uh, now wife, who was really into it. Mm. And I thought, well, all right, I'll try it. And really, it isn't even 
that I fell in love with the storytelling at first. I, I just fell in love with Duchovny and Gillian Anderson because the chemistry hmm. was so good. And it was still like first season, I think, at that point. Um, so I came in late in the first season. But, man, I just loved watching the two of them work. And and then, you know, I got into it because it was a really well-shot show. It was a really mm-hmm. attractive show to look at. And the stories were clever. You know, they, they, they overcame my resistance to Monster of the Week kind of things and alien conspiracies and all that. Um, and, and then, you know, as it kept going, at least for a while, the storytelling was really, really good. Erica, what's your uh, re- past relationship with The X-Files? Well, I honestly don't remember if I started at the very beginning, although I think it is likely uh, because, you know, I have geek parents. So anytime there was a new show that had anything science fiction-y coming, uh, that was usually something that got watched in our household. And my friend Mike at the time, who became one of the biggest X-Files fans, I know, uh, I think he was probably in on the ground floor. So between those things, I'm I'm sure I must have been watching from the beginning. So I'm pretty sure I've seen every single episode of the X-Files. And I I quite liked it at the time, even when I went away to college, when it was still airing, we would have like, we had the uh, the the den which is the room with the tv for the floor signed out for x-files every week and there'd be like 20 of us in there watching the episodes all the time so i going back and and trying to watch these episodes i've sort of discovered that most of my memories are are of that of just sort of of watching the show but i have, i struggled more than i thought i was going to to actually remember anything that happened on the show despite having seen all of it huh. all right uh, John, what's your memory of the X-Files back in the day? This is the days before TiVo and uh, mostly the days before skipping commercials at all. And so I remember seeing what I get. I don't think there were a lot of them, but there were enough that I saw them advertisements for the show. Hey, there's this new show coming on Fox. It's called the X-Files and it has something to do with UFOs or science fiction or something or detectives or FBI agents or whatever. I remember seeing the ads, and I said, this is a show for me. I, it was, I always knew it was a show for me. I watched from the beginning. I watched it to the bitter, bitter end. Um, <laughs> I, it's, I, think it's one, I think it was the first uh, DVD box set that I bought. Like, I bought all of them up until the uh, they got bad, uh, so around season six. Um, and that uh, to this day, I still have them all lined up. They're really nice DVD sets. Uh, I I loved it. It was it was uh, appointment television, and I, I really feel like the series sort of defined, started to define the modern era of uh, television of television shows that I like. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. Oh, um, I'd say all television. So my my yeah. uh, my experience, uh, likewise, uh, tuned into the first episode because it seemed sort of intriguing. Although um, Fox at this point also had some. Uh, well, I, I don't know. If, I think Fox soon were to, were to have many ridiculous science fiction shows that tried to replicate the success of the X Files, and uh, and didn't. But but I tuned in for whatever reason, saw the first episode, thought it was really quite good, and I was on the train there. And as John said, watched to watched to the bitter end, and uh, was surprised. I don't remember it quite as clearly as when I watched the pi- pilot of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I had no expectations for and was shocked at how good it was. But I, it was a similar kind of experience, as I recall, to watch The X-Files, where I was not really expecting a show that was as good as the show that I got, that it was it was kind of funny and there was chemistry between the leads. And it was a little like, uh, you know, kind of a, a clever idea. I mean, we should talk a little bit about the premise of this show. It is 
it is in many ways an anthology show, very much like uh, something like even like The Twilight Zone, but with the continuing characters of the investigators, uh, FBI agents Mulder and Scully, who are uh, going to various places that have evergreen forests because they shot it in Vancouver for the first five years, um, the, and and investigating various paranormal uh, occurrences and, and things that might not be explainable by normal means. And I thought that was a great idea, and, uh, and it l- allowed them to tell all sorts of different stories and get the feel of a Twilight Zone kind of show, except with the bonus of having recurring characters and an ongoing storyline. Yeah, I think this was one of the the earlier examples of a show that had that overarching arc that wasn't every week so much. And that was one of the things that that drew me to it and then kept me coming back. I liked I liked the fact that we still got Monster of the Week episodes quite a lot. So there was still that flavor. But I was always a sucker for an arc. So for a long time, I was really on board, really excited anytime that came up. And when it started to sort of fall apart, I still kept watching, <laughs> but uh, but was less excited about those episodes and then got more excited about Monster of the Week stories again. Yeah, I mean, the, the introduction of the continuing storyline was very exciting. I do think that it was it was groundbreaking uh, in some ways. It was also this was this was the biggest hit for a long time of a genre TV show in, as a mainstream TV hit. This was a big hit. I think people don't recall yeah. this now. They not only did they move the show to L.A., they moved the time slot from Friday, the Friday night kind of death zone where they put on the silly sci-fi for the kids to this very day, in fact. Hello, viewers of Grimm on NBC. Um, that is the slot that they started on. They moved them to Sunday nights, uh, the highest rated night of TV, and it was a... A consistent success for several years in that post-Simpsons, post-NFL time slot for Fox. Um, so this was a this was a genre TV show that had a broad appeal, which is kind of weird when you think about it, because this is a weird <laughs> show about fluke men and other and little gray aliens and <laughs> and things like that. Uh, but it, but it really was, and so I think it's influential in that way, in that everybody tried to make a new version of the X Files. And I'm not sure I may be skipping some shows here, but I feel like you could draw a line from something like lost back to the x-files in some ways as a main an attempt that that had some rating success to draw that line backward of uh, broad broad appeal yet secretly semi-secretly uh another one of these kind of uh, genre tv shows i don't know well and, and and there was something in the air right around the early 90s where um TV shows suddenly started to to pick up on serialization, not heavily, but uh, that that things would continue on for more than just, uh, you know, it's like you'd have that special episode where Magnum's wife from Vietnam shows up. And that was like the one episode a year that had any continuity. And the rest of Magnum was just, you know, the other the other two shows that I would I would say are influential in in the X-Files are um are uh, Twin Peaks, which predated it by a couple mm-hmm. of years. Not only does it have a David Duchovny appearance as a as a, a, an FBI agent, an FBI agent, indeed, mm-hmm. Dennis slash Denise, um, and uh, we also had uh, Northern Exposure, another show shot in the Pacific Northwest, and, and all, although quirky, was also. Um, uh, had ongoing stories and things like that, and even though it was more of a comedy, so so it was it was kind of an interesting combination. And so, uh, you know, I didn't pick 
I didn't pick the ongoing storyline, but there definitely was an ongoing storyline. It's very funny when you meet Deep Throat, played by Jerry Harden in the first season. He's the government contact, and he's going to tell you the secrets of, of the of the UFO conspiracy. And it's quite a shock when he is killed. It's a great kind of cliffhanger. But I get the sense from this, and John, you mentioned the conspiracy episodes, so maybe we should talk about that now. I get the sense that maybe they didn't have enough story to carry them through for, for se- seven or eight or nine years. And, and that, I think, is why I'm... I, I ended up being soured on the whole ongoing storyline is I felt like either they didn't know at all where they were going with it or they they knew. But then they realized they couldn't tell that story anymore because they had too much. They had too much to tell. They got too popular, too successful, and they couldn't go down that. So in the end, now, when I look back on it, I kind of don't even want to see the ongoing story because I felt like it just kind of fell apart in the end. But you're wrong. But well, you're wrong. Tell me why they, I'm wrong. <laughs> They discovered what the show discovers. They discovered the formula. It's like that experiment with the, I don't know what those monkeys, but anyway, some kind of animal where you, if you press the little paddle, it gives you a pellet. And uh, if it gives the pellet every time, the animal gets bored. And if it never gives the pellet, the animal gets bored. But if it gives the pellet randomly, the animal cannot stay away from that little button. It says, oh, well, I, I don't know. Every time I press it, I don't know what's going to happen. So uh, as compared to something like Twin Peaks, which was basically all serialization, one big long story doled out, or a show like Magnum P.I., which is, you know, episodic, the world resets after each one. The X-Files discovered that if you give random rewards, random arc episodes, random monster of the week, it, it creates a the most the most appealing, the most addicting uh, formula. And that's that's basically been the format for every attempt to make a hit show since. You, know, you, you mentioned Lost and just like name any other show that attempts to be an ongoing show that isn't just a straight up. We're going to tell a story from beginning to end. Right. Um, it always does that. It always has to mix. We have an overarching plot and then, but we also have characters that we can, and a premise that we can repurpose to tell all sorts of stories. And you need that mixture. And I, you can, I can imagine one type of episode appealing more to one person than another person, but without the arc episodes. And when we talk about the episodes that we, we watch for this thing, without the arc episodes, these episodes that you picked lose a lot of their punch because they have to play against the often, somewhat humorously deadly serious arc episodes you know in hindsight these episodes don't work as well nearly as well if they're not playing off of the arc episodes and there are people who like the arc episodes there are people who like the uh, the monster of the week episodes and there are people who like them all but you need to have the mix and i think where the show went awry is well you know you're right as you run out of story as the show just goes on and on because they just couldn't go away from it like this is a hit show we have to keep going it's like yeah yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah, exactly. You have to keep it going. But I, I think they did a really good job of extending it in a way that didn't feel like padding. Because just when you were getting sick of an arc episode, an amazing standalone would come. And just when you're tired of Monster of the Week, they'd throw in another arc that connected up to the beginning of the season. And I'm just amazed at how how the show kept me going. And I never felt like I was uh, getting tired of it until, you know until the stars left and, and it was yeah, like, that's... All right. <laughs> you know i never thought the mythology stories towards the end i never thought they felt like padding so that is something that i have to give them i just felt like the story itself had kind of gone off the rails and like jason said to me it didn't feel like like they were 
going to the place that they expected to be going at the beginning and felt very unsure of it at the time. So that's why I got less excited about those. But as I said, I still kept watching because I still like the Monster of the Week stories. And, you know, I I held out hope that they were going to pull it out and do something really interesting with the arc stories. But that never quite happened. But but, but an arc comes to an end. Like it goes it goes goes up and it reaches its peak. It goes down like and then they just want to keep making more arcs and make it like the the Golden Arches and McDonald's. It's like, no, you get kind of one of those with this set of characters. So, you know, not that they not this is why they brought in the other characters but when they had that you know dog it and everybody come in it's like maybe these guys can have a new arc it's like uh, that's a different show nice try yeah i mean one of the things that has always impressed me about it was that and and chris carter made no secret of this one of his big influences was a show from the early 70s called kolchak yeah. the night stalker and 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 i watched that way way back and it, it was quite awful um the two the, <laughs> i mean the two movies they did before it i mean they weren't pilots you know abc just commissioned a movie and it did so well that they said oh let's do another one and that did so well that they're like okay series and and even the people making the show were like whoa wait we didn't we well okay we'll do a series and and it has that really rigorously thought out plan for a series clearly um and Every week, Kolchak is the true believer who goes off and and discovers some other monster, and he has to explain to everybody there who's skeptical while he fights the monster, and then he goes home as if nothing happened. And it's as if uh, Carter figured out the problem with that is you need the skeptic to be consistent, too. You need someone to talk to, and you need you need the arc, even if it's even if it's not necessarily important to the monster of that week, you do need that arc of, okay, weird things are happening everywhere. You don't just reset at the end of each episode, uh, which, you know, now 1970s TV, you pretty much had to reset at the end of the episode. But it made more sense to just sort of have this overarching thing to say, okay, weird stuff's going on, aliens, monsters, whatever. So one of the um, strengths of this show, and David just mentioned it, is the setup here. We have our our lead characters, Fox Mulder, played by David Duchovny, Dana Scully, played by Gillian Anderson, um, both of whom have gone on to be in lots of other stuff, which I think is kind of cool because sometimes the stars of these shows kind of go away after the show goes off the air. And uh, the way that they're, it's structured, Fox Mulder is a wide-eyed believer in you name what you got. He believes in it. And Dana Scully is uh, a skeptic. She is a medical doctor who is sort of fresh out of the FBI Academy. Um, this show owes an awful lot to the Silence of the Lambs. Um, she is very much, uh, at least Dana Scully begins very much as uh, Clary Starling, uh, as Jodie Foster's character in Silence of the Lambs. It owes a lot. Uh, the look as well to that, um, I think. Not bad. One best picture. Very successful movie. Why not uh, crib from it a little bit? Uh, but Scully in the role of the skeptic, uh, it is it is a, a powerful thing. Although, again, as we keep saying, because this really is the story of the show, with diminishing returns as time goes on, because eventually Scully has seen everything. Why is she skeptical? But mm-hmm. well, but they, but they give her a turn like they have her. They, they reverse yeah, even okay. even in the first she, season, they reverse yeah. it. And there's a couple of waivers back and forth. Sometimes she's the believer in Mulder's and they, they give her they give her things to do with her character like eventually they run out of things for both characters to do because 
Mulder has found out about his sister. She's cured her cancer and figured out her baby. And like, then it's like, all right, now what do we do? Now they just feel like empty vessels that right. you're imposing plot on. But I really think they gave them both. Like, they didn't just stick her into. She's going to be skeptical for five seasons. She wasn't. She wasn't even skeptical for one solid. Well, season. I mean, I did. I did assign Beyond the Sea here, right? This is this is a, a great <laughs> turn of events where suddenly that's season one, so, exactly right. Where suddenly yeah. um, Mulder does not believe and Dana believes. But then again, Mulder, although he's a believer, is not particularly religious religious character and Dana is a dis- is a non-believer who is religious and that is fascinating as a combination too because they have this uh there there are some interesting moments and in, in in Beyond the Sea which which we watched her her father dies and then she gets visions of him and uh and and apparently uh a uh, a fellow played by Brad Dourif Luther Lee Boggs can uh, can talk to people who are dead and has because he has these magical uh, psychic powers and she believes him because he references her father and that she had seen a vision of her father on the night that he died and Mulder doesn't believe it at all which is I think one of the reasons I picked this this episode as one of the four we watched is I love the reversal of it but you still have that adversarial mm-hmm. relationship where the two characters are not you know they're pulling against each other and that that makes for some interesting drama inside the context of of a given premise that's one of the key things they did in the show is made sure at least i think they made sure maybe i'm fooling myself made sure i thought in every episode that nobody turns out to be right fox is not proven right like oh Mulder was right all along it was supernatural and she's not proven right that it was hoax every single episode every single mini scene both of them give strong arguments and you're left at no point does the series decide this is real, this is fake, this is real. They always leave a little bit. So even in this one, even even in Beyond the Sea, everything that, that Fox says, say, well, this could be that, it could be that. Yeah, it could be. And she says, yeah, but what if you know? Yeah, that would also explain it. And even when they try to give like the proof, oh, he could never have known that if you had told, like, they always just leave a little crack open. So I love that they, that the show does not impose an opinion about which one of these things is right. Eventually that, you know, they get to like the aliens and stuff like that. The stuff is hard and fast and real, but nobody's skepticism or belief is ever really made to seem foolish. And all Mm. the skeptical comments are entirely plausible. Like, there are plausible explanations. Maybe not high odds, but there are plausible ones. And I I really respect the show for not for not uh, jumping on one side or the other. I guess some people watch this and they say, oh, Mulder's always right, and Scully, why doesn't she believe? <laughs> but she has some really good points in a lot yes. of this. And in this episode, with Mulder as the skeptic, he has some really good points, like with the Knicks t-shirt and everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And And they're both allowed to be intelligent human beings, too. There's no there's no sense of, oh, you're a crazy person for believing this or you're insane for not believing this. It's they are intelligent people, which is rare on TV. And they listen to each other for the most part. Like they're there to keep each other honest. And even though you say it's adversarial, both of them, it's so clear that both of them are working towards whatever the goal is that week to 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 solve solve this this mystery. And they're just arguing about the points of view. It's not as if they're one upping each other or working at odds. They're always working together. They're a team trying to keep each other. They're a team and they're they're professionals and they're they are working even though they are uh, uh, questioning one another. They are working together to solve the 
It really is the best kind of partnership, too, to have somebody coming in from each side of the equation. I don't think either one of them works as well without the other. If they had gotten a partner who is, you know, Mulder partnered with somebody else who believes, I think that would be a complete mess. So this is it's it's a good balance. Yeah. And, th- and that I mean, if if you asked me what the secrets of the, the success of the X-Files are, you know, some of it is uh, luck, probably. But I think a lot of it is the casting. And this and this key core premise of the skeptic and the believer who are a team. And it's, you know, it's like the, it's like a mismatched cop story. But the fact is, it really it really works as a premise. And 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 then David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson are are very good and work really well together. And uh, and it's uh, it's. It's kind of magical when they do it. Uh, the the Scully, the the role of Scully to question, um, because I I remember um, David will remember this because he remembers everything that happens from the seventies, like uh, Project UFO. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah there there's oh, a lot yeah. of wide eyed in the seventies, especially, but wide eyed, you know, you 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 ufology or whatever, you know, just like oh, it's oh, it's all real, man. It's all and and you gotta have. You got to have a believer, but you got to have somebody to puncture it or the show is going to be like death. And and Scully provides that. And it's such a great role that I, I'm going to make a reference to. A, there's a joke in, a, in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where Buffy actually turns to one of the people, one of her, her teammates and says, I cannot believe you of all people is trying to Scully me. And it's a great moment because it's like, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Sometimes Scully has to be there to say, maybe that's maybe it's not this. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I know we're on a show where crazy things happen. Maybe this wasn't a crazy thing. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by Feverborn. It may be winter, snowy in some parts of the country, rainy in others, but things are heating up. Number one New York Times bestselling author Karen Marie Moaning has Feverborn. Mac, Barron's, Riodon, and Jada are back. The stakes have never been higher, and the chemistry has never been hotter, hurling us into a realm of labyrinthine intrigue and consummate seduction. Feverborn is a riveting tale of ancient evil, lust, betrayal, forgiveness, and the redemptive power of love. Once a normal city possessing a touch of ancient magic, Dublin is now a treacherously magical city with only a touch of normal. And on those war-torn streets, Mac will come face-to-face with her most savage enemy yet herself. Number one New York Times bestselling author Sylvia Day says, no one does it better than Karen Marie Monning. Read Feverborn, the exciting new epic in the Fever series. Available now. Visit feverbornbook.com to learn more. So anything more, uh, any thoughts about Beyond the Sea? I mean, this is, I've forgotten. First off, um, the Netflix now has this whole series in HD widescreen, which it, it is a beautiful uh, piece of, of reconditioning that they did. It looks fantastic. And I had forgotten, because it's been a while since I revisited this show, I'd forgotten how good it was. And I remembered in the back of my mind that Beyond the Sea was a good episode. But I thought, I, I, as I sat there and watched, I go, "Oh my god, this is really great!" Like Brad Dourif is great in it; he's super creepy. We get, we get. It's the most Brad Dourif. Brad is, Dourif it, ever. Like this is, this really might is. as well have said on this episode a Brad Dourif yeah. joint. Oh yeah, at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> yeah, and Don Davis, uh, who who went on to be on Stargate SG One and was on Twin Peaks. He was on Twin it, Peaks. Yes, yeah. I know. I saw it and I was like, "Oh my god, and Scully's it's, dad, it's the Colonel." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a. Uh, and uh, and I and I love this episode because it, as we've said before, it could be both. Like Mulder is doing the whole amazing Randy thing, kind of like this is a cold read. You know, it, it's it's uh, these are all these tricks you can do to say you're a psychic and they and they aren't accurate. And yet, yet you know, 
Scully discovers or, that, or he could be arranging things with people outside. Exactly, you know, you know he's it, the person is his partner in past yes. crimes. Probably, like there's so many, there's so much evidence on the, you know, and she she's already emotionally distraught, and she's even questioning herself. She Scully's herself. Yeah. She's like, you know, people have visions of things and can't can't get out of her head. But you know, the show is very good also about not being clear when they show you something on camera, whether someone is really seeing something or whether they're imagining right. it, which, you know, we'll get to that in the Bad Blood episode where they go, you know, full Rashomon. <laughs> but, uh, but like, it's very good about not saying, oh, this is wavy camera, and therefore I know this is... Does Scully really see those things? Were they actually there? Like, you, yeah. they don't have answers for you. Yeah, I, this was my first X-Files episode in many many years because i don't think i'd gone back and rewatched anything until until these four episodes and i found that this was a really nice one to start with i mean you do have the fact that the characters are sort of reversed but that i remembered so it was that was fine but you know you get the introduction the reintroduction for me of the characters you have scully having christmas dinner with her family um you know kind of roots me in scully's character a little bit and then like the very first scene with Mulder, we're talking about like adult video news mm-hmm. so it's like all right yep that's fox <laughs> and i mean we see a literal x file like the file with big x on yep. the front of it and yeah it was just it was really nice and then and then talking about you know dana not entirely believing but really being the one who does i mean she has the great line where she says i'm afraid to believe which i think is the perfect Uh, mirror of fox's i want to believe from the poster um and you know her dad dies in this i mean there's that too is that she's upset her dad dies um and and then we've got a man who's going on he's on death row and he's going to be executed and so there's this time pressure in there i just i thought this was a really terrific episode Uh, you know i was I had forgotten it. And so I, I was impressed. I really love Brad Dourif's performance in this. Um, mm-hmm. And I love the ending where um, he says to Scully, come to my execution. And before and she doesn't show and before they, you know, before they kill me, I'll tell you your message from your dad. And she doesn't come. It's, gr- it's so great. Yeah. Now, a worse show would have had her show up and had him say yeah. something. But it's like, it, it, mm-hmm. it, nope. you know, even though this was like towards the end of the first season, this episode was telling you, you think you know all these characters, but there's more to them than you think. And, you know, even even having watched, if you had watched 1 through 12, would you have predicted that Skelly wouldn't show up? Especially after seeing this episode and what a wreck she was and what she's gone through. You would say, oh, she's definitely showing up. Nope. No. It, it's bold. It's actually halfway through. It's not even at the oh, end I of the season. I forgot how many damn episodes yeah. they had back yeah, then. This is yeah. mid-season. This is, this is the mid middle of the season. Sherlock does like three every decade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so now they're doing six of the other revival. So how, <laughs> how, how, um, how many episodes do they have now? Should we, let's, let's move on. I, I had you watch, uh, Clyde Bruckman, Clyde Bruckman's final repo- repose, which is one of five question mark, four or five episodes written by Darren Morgan, who is the brother. I think it's four. four uh, Darren Morgan, who is the brother of, uh, Glenn Morgan, who with James Wong was a producing pair on, the on the series for many years and i believe um they're all all three of those gentlemen are writing episodes of the revival mm-hmm. um when well, and the two of them wrote beyond the sea so clyde bruckman uh is is by darren morgan darren morgan uh his episodes he also played the fluke man in the, in an episode that the host that we didn't watch um but is really gross <laughs> <laughs> and um and, and he wrote these episodes that one i remember and, and, uh, so to john's point to john's point um 
one of the things about Darren Morgan's episodes that are so smart and so funny and so strange is the contrast with the regular episodes where Mulder is very serious and he believes in a thing. And, you know, you're kind of run of the mill, which is not to say bad, but your usual X-Files episodes. And seen in contrast, they are they are that much uh, more powerful. I remember turning to my wife while we were watching one of Darren Morgan's episodes, I think the first one, I think it was Humbug, and saying, oh, geez, this is comedy. And and like, how could this show, <laughs> this show, it realizes suddenly that it can be funny and that it could just devote a whole episode to being funny. Um, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose is not just funny. It's, it, it, it's, it's lots of things. It's touching. It also is strangely similar to Beyond the Sea, which I didn't realize when I picked it, that it is also about psychics predicting things and Mulder and Scully being skeptical of psychic predictions. And it, in fact, reuses and and spins a joke from Beyond the Sea where they give uh, something for Clyde Bruckman to uh, to read on. And he says, I think this is just your New York Knicks T-shirt, um, which and he says wrong. He says wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Um, so this, I think, this is one of the best episodes that the show that the show did. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't work if you don't have the established characters. Like you can't just have this. Can't be episode one. It makes no sense as episode oh, one. You have to know that these and they didn't do. it They did the reversal with both of them, where they're both skeptical because who wouldn't be skeptical of whatever the eyebrow crazy guy is? The, the stupendous. Yeah. 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 I mean, when he he uh, goes out in the hallway and he's leaving with his, his entourage and his coat on his shoulders and he, and he looks at uh, Mulder and says skeptics like you make me sick that line doesn't <laughs> no. work unless you haven't seen you know 15 other uh, you know or at this point like for 30 40 other episodes of Mulder always being the one you can't have this episode without the other ones um and yet yeah. like like you said Jason it's not it's not just a straight up comedy reversal haha like all the other episodes of the straight mans and this is the funny it's a good story. It's a touching story. Mm. It's a good story. It's a good mystery. It has interesting characters. It's got, uh, what's his name from uh, Everybody Peter Loves Raymond? Boyle. Peter Boyle. Yeah. Uh, like, that's the thing that amazes me about this episode when you go back. Who they got to be all their guest stars, even in the minor roles. Yeah. Lots of, uh, what my impression from here living in the future as we are now is that, boy, they let a lot of people who are over 20 years old play roles back in the, back in the day. You remember that? <laughs> when people could play roles and they weren't all young and beautiful? Uh, it really it really just gives the show a certain flavor. But anyway, yeah, I, I think this, this episode fires on all cylinders, but absolutely cannot exist without the preceding episodes and without the arc episodes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you need the arc episodes for this, but you definitely need to know who the characters <laughs> but you are. But you, you have okay. to know the characters. Yes. You have to know. And it's not fun to skewer somebody. It's not fun to to make light of someone's deeply held beliefs unless they have been deadly serious in the Zelda. You got to find yeah. my sister and UFOs and aliens. Like you can't you can't poke fun. At, you can't play against that unless it really was taken seriously. If it's always funny, if it's always a joke, that doesn't work. And if he's always wrong. There's too. a great line in this one, which is, um, you know, you and your partner are are here to, I forget what the whole thing is. It's it, it's this whole distraction that, or this whole description that Peter Boyle does. You and your partner, who is skeptical, have come here to solve the murder and this and that and that. And he turns around and he sees Mulder and he goes, oh, it's you. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, like, they're, they're undercutting each other at, at every single line in this thing. It's great. And I even love like straight up as a serious, you know, episode with the predictions and stuff with the pie and stepping on the pie and realizing he has to spin around. It's like the whole, you know, you can't escape fate right. and 
whatever you do is leading you farther into it, even though you think you're cheating it, and sometimes it doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to be. Anyway. Also, the and anyway, you said gross eyeballs. You said you didn't pick too. any. Yeah, you said you didn't pick any arc episodes, but I would argue that this has the most important arc point in the entire X Files uh, series, which is where we find out that Scully doesn't die. Oh well, that is that's true. I, I hung on that little <laughs> tidbit of information for the entire series, like, oh my god, I take it as gospel to this yeah, day sure. that she never dies. Yeah, that's that's a that's a beautiful moment that uh, that you want to know because Clyde Bruckman's power, his psychic power, is that he knows the, how people are going to die, their method of death, and when, and when, and and when he tells Scully's, well, you don't. Yeah, this is this is actually the episode where I learned. Uh, well, after it, I had to look it up. I learned what autoerotic asphyxiation oh, yeah. was. So, <laughs> quite a way. So to, thanks for quite that. Quite a way to go. An educational program. But, too. Well, and knowing what we know about Mulder and his and his love of pornography, the implication is that this is how Mulder goes. But in the end, we discover that it's how Clyde Bruckman goes, and it is a kind of a there. It is a talk about a, a, a poignant moment, a funny moment that turns into a poignant moment is when he tells Scully that uh in in the hotel that i see us in bed together tears streaming down my face you're holding my hand um it's a real you know it's a it's a moment of tenderness and she thinks he's basically uh picking up on her and when we see what happens is she's found him dead and he's got the plastic bag on his head and the drips are streaming down his face and it's so sad and it starts funny and turns very sad it's quite a trick quite a trick and there, there's so many and, of those. And, in this and during that scene, when he's when he's saying that to her, and she's like getting embarrassed and smiling and blushing. At that point, you say, "This is what like a you know this guy might say to, to sure. this, a pretty young woman." In the same way that he might intentionally tease Mulder with the autoerotic asphyxiation joke, because he's kind of a cranky guy, and he does make jokes a lot. Uh, and so it's all uh, right up until the end of the episode. You you look at those scenes and you can come away with, uh, from all of them with all sorts of different reads. You don't you don't take as gospel what he's saying because you look at the expressions on their faces and you know he could be he's very uh, you know Clyde Bruckman is very dry yeah. uh, and uh, it, he does uh, you know poke fun at people throughout this episode. So you know right up until the end. I mean you believe his power. But you you don't really have a good read on the guy when he's just toying with right. people. Uh, you do get that yeah. he's sad, and you do get that he you know they, they do the bag of cabbage thing at the beginning for a foreshadowing of how you know it's going to end. But it all works; it all comes together. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by us. We're selling t-shirts again. Go to theincomparable.com slash shirt to find out more. Currently on sale, the incomparable robot in royal vintage black or 100% cotton black and the zeppelin is back in 100% cotton sky blue try blend premium heather gray that's the fog gray and comrade if you prefer the red zeppelin it is also available in vintage red get your shirts now theincomparable.com slash shirt designs go off sale on february 4th 2016 I wanted to also mention about this episode that it, it one of the brilliant things about all the Darren Morgan episodes, but I think this one does it best, is it does not abandon the show and it really knows what the show is. And, and, and one I would actually put it up as one of the great scenes in the X-Files is when Clyde Bruckman describes his own origin story. It's amazing because he tells the story about Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and he says, imagine the chain of events that had to happen where... Uh, whether a man lives or dies is determined by the toss of a coin. And he tells the whole story about how the Big Bopper wasn't meant to be on the plane and all these things that had to happen. And they flipped a coin to see who got the last seat on the plane. And 
and the idea is that he becomes so obsessed with this and this idea of, of chance and death and all of that, that he becomes able to see this. But it's such a great moment because it is explaining the premise of how he has his powers. And it is a spooky kind of idea of, of uh, imagine the fact that because the, if, if that story is true, then that absolutely it did come to that. So I, I love that, that, that this it embraces being the X-Files and that, that this is the source of his power, perhaps, question mark, we don't know, is thinking of an idea like that. And it's just it's a great kind of creepy, spooky scene. And it ends with a great joke, which is, you know, I know what you're saying to yourself. This seems impossible. How could you like the Big Bopper more than Buddy Holly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th- he Peter Boyle is my favorite part of this episode of, of, of so many parts of this episode that are good. But I just I, watching him try to pr- pronounce Lollapalooza, I think, was one of my <laughs> life's great joys. Um, and just his delivery of the line, you know, he just he looks so sad in the apartment. Sometimes it just seems that everyone's having sex except yeah. for me. Just, yeah. like, it, it gets me. But my favorite part, I think, is just how uncooperative he is. He's not like the stupendous yappy who's who's trying to trying to show how great he is. He wants nothing to do with this, and he makes no bones about it. And he doesn't get any more cooperative really throughout the entire episode. He gets maybe slightly nicer, especially to Scully. But no, like Fox has to buy insurance from him yes. in order to get information. <laughs> like he's going to use it, you know, every moment that he can. It's great. Let's give a word to. I mean, stupendous yappy is great. He is de- very definitely a, a Yuri Geller figure. In fact, there is a bent yes. spoon joke in this. Um, <laughs> bent pen. But, but um, I like the killer in this, the killer bellhop, mm-hmm. just because, um, you know, he's an X-Files monster. He he's killing fortune tellers and psychics and things like that and 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 we we and there are entrails and and removing eyes and all sorts of things like that that are the the horror tropes of this and that's great and at the very end what's the culmination of it he runs into Clyde Bruckman accidentally and there's a great moment of like <laughs> oh well would you look at that. And then he says, why do I do the things that I do? And Clyde Buckman says, don't yeah. you see, son? It's because you're a homicidal maniac. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah, that, that would explain a lot. <laughs> that makes so much sense. Beautiful. Just um. beautiful. Such a good episode. Uh, Darren Morgan also wrote, just to, to note it, uh, Humbug, which is the episode about the uh, the carnival people who live in the carnival town in Florida that is hilarious and weird. Um uh, he wrote later in the same in the same season, season three. He wrote uh, Jose Chung's From Outer Space, which it stars Charles Nelson Riley as a, as a, a writer, and that was also as deconstructy a deconstruction of UFO stories as you will ever see. Yeah. And. What might be my favorite, honestly, War of the Coprophages, which is about a bunch of cockroaches from outer space that invade New Jersey. And I love it. Which it's basically War of the Worlds. It is, with cockroaches. With cockroaches. Yeah. Which I loved. Yeah. It is, it is amazing. He's, so I'm looking forward to his, uh, his episode for the, for the relaunched uh, miniseries that's coming out. Which I think is called Mulder and Scully Meet the Werewolf. Yeah, I believe that's I think called. that's the title, which yeah. I love. It's, I think so. Oh. Uh, so if we for- move forward to Bad Blood, this is an episode that David picked, uh, and and as as John said, the full Rashomon. This is this is yep. a story where um, we start with uh, a kid running through a forest. <laughs> Screaming for help! What a great opening because X Files is oh, so, so good at the opening brilliant. where where they, before the credits run they want to pull you into the episode and every so episode they're so good about going you know the, the the traditional TV how are they going to get out of this one What a great opening! 
and and so he he's calling for help and he ends up kind of being being caught and and he's laying on the ground and he is he's basically staked through the heart you and don't know who's chasing him at this point no we don't right. and then and then there's a reverse shot and it's Mulder, <laughs> and Mulder goes oh shh <laughs> no, and then he, look, he looks at the teeth he looks at the oh, teeth yeah. and the oh teeth yeah, yeah. And the skull, he pulls the teeth the, out the, right. that's right the vampire Plastic. teeth are fake <laughs> And it's he fake goes, vampire oh, oh shh because by this point this is totally Amazing. a thing we could see Mulder doing he totally yes. believe this kid is a vampire chase yep. him down he knows he's a vampire Mulder knows for sure he, this guy, this kid is a vampire he stakes him through the heart then <laughs> Scully checks the teeth that it's plastic and he's like ugh <laughs> and then so then the episode is they're preparing their report for, for uh, director Skinner <laughs> and um, and sort of saying well what are you going to tell him well what are you going to tell him and so we see it from Scully's perspective and then we see it from Mulder perspective this episode by the way written by vince gilligan who would go on to do breaking bad uh x-files generated a bunch of uh producers who've gone on to do a, a whole bunch of other stuff um david why did you pick bad blood well because it's funny but in a different way i mean it again it still keeps enough of the darkness in the series but it gets to be funny in a different mode right it's it's very dry i love the way it's structured you know, again, a Rashomon story is going to be very complex to structure and to do it well. And this one does it very well. And and to set up all of these things that, that seem like throwaway things, like Scully doing the autopsy of the one guy where she starts picking apart the stomach contents and going, you know, what, pepperoni? Yeah. Oh, it's a pizza. It's pizza. That actually sounds pretty good. Right. Lots of and, weighing of body parts in this, uh, of organs in this. <laughs> Slithering and, off the scale, you know, oh, that's a take so that good. Kept it, like, unintentional, and, but we're keeping that one. Oh, man. And, uh, but, you know, that sets up the pizza, which becomes important later. Yeah. But we don't know why. And then when she goes back for the next autopsy and sees pizza and goes, aha, now I know where the connection is. And she goes back. And, you know, it's just all of these things so carefully. I mean, it is literally a house of cards to build this plot. And it's just so well done. Uh, but it's also got some some ridiculous moments, like when when she discovers Mulder unconscious in the hotel room and uh, he wakes up singing the, the lyrics from Shaft. Yes. And doing the whole, you know. Shut your mouth. I'm just, just talking, talking about, about Shaft. Shaft. And right back to the present day where he goes, I did not. <laughs> she goes, mm-hmm, you did. Which is, you know, and, and you can see, again, you can see both versions. You can see Mulder doing that. And you can see him denying it. I mean, it's it's. Well, we haven't so even talked nice. about Luke Wilson yet. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. And just their, their different visions of Luke Wilson. Yeah, so Luke Wilson um, is the sheriff in a small town, and in uh, in Scully's version, he's Luke Wilson, and in Mulder's version, he's Luke Wilson with uh, bad teeth. He's <laughs> Jeth- a much thicker accent. Yes, or Jethro. And, and he's Jethro Clamp. Much, yeah, much dumber. The best thing about this episode is it uh, again coming later as it did in, in season five. It gives you a glimpse of how, like we used, in, in the previous episodes, serious or funny or whatever, standalone or arc. You see uh, Scully and Mulder playing off each other and arguing and being exasperated with each other and trying to persuade, uh, both being intelligent, as we said, intelligent, skilled adults, uh, meeting of the minds. And in this one, you get to see like sort of 
the you know the internal uh, world where you are the hero of your own story. How does how does uh, Mulder look to Scully when she's really just frustrated with him? He's like a bouncing kid. Oh, I got to show you this. Look at these cows. Blah, 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 and just won't <laughs> listen to reason. And he's a little kid. And he's an idiot. And how does Scully seem to Mulder when he's when he's exasperated with her? She's just like you know always just complaining and it's just a downer and can't listen to reason. He and how does he sound to himself? In his world, he's very calm and explains everything in a perfectly sensible way. And why? Why wouldn't anybody listen to him like he's giving a boardroom presentation right and the same thing with her when she's talking with luke wilson you know her flirting is her flirting game is on point right she is totally picking up what he's putting down and saying <laughs> interesting witty things like mm-hmm. it's just a, forget the characters i think it's just a, a beautifully done uh example of what really happens which is what our omniscient third person camera sees and how we are the star of our own stories and how it warps how we how we see ourselves and how uh we see other people as well and and once they wind up going back to the little town uh and then it becomes just straightforward omniscient third person camera you can see that they're both they 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 maintain that balance pretty well where yeah you could see both interpretations you know he's eager but not totally eager except for the teeth and and she's you know serious but she you know it, i mean it was it's just so so nicely done that way and it, and it's the kind of story they hadn't told before which that's always a, a nice thing to discover in the fifth season of a show yeah I, and i was impressed by the fact that they switched back and forth so confidently between the past and the present you know as you mentioned you know just like kind of a crash cut back to Mulder being like i did you know he he, he wasn't singing the shaft song and Again, a lesser show may have used some sort of like the past would have been in black and white or kind of, you know, (laughs) sepia toned or just something different. And no, nothing at all. And there was I think only once did I get confused very briefly as to like, wait, what just happened? The rest of the time it it made perfect sense. They did it skillfully enough that I was able to tell where we were at any particular time. I really like this one. I'm kind of a sucker for any sort of unreliable narrator narrator Uh story. So and I had forgotten that that was this episode. I never remember stories based on titles. So it got started and we got to the end of, you know, what felt like the end of the story after after Scully's done relating her tale so fast. I was like, what on earth is going on? They just wrapped everything up. (laughs) And then and then it starts over and I'm like, oh, I I see where we're going. I see what we're doing. And and I just I thought it was great. And I agree that it is it is very nice that we get inside their heads and see what they think of each other. It's it's a really nice episode just to to see how they work together. Together. Even uh-huh. at the end, uh, in the present day, when they're waiting to go into Skinner's office, you have Scully leaning over and straightening Mulder's tie. It's just such right. a, yeah. a small moment, but it really shows kind of how intimate they are, small eye intimate. Uh, and it's it's just lovely. Don't don't forget to tell him you were yeah. drugged. Remember to emphasize no, no. you were drugged. No. And he's like, oh, I'm going to say that as soon as Skinner shows up, he says, I was drugged. I was drugged. <laughs> the, yeah. uh, they travel a lot, obviously. They're going from town to town solving mysteries. Um, and, and I like some of the travel stuff in this episode. Uh, the 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 she's exhausted from doing the autopsy and she turns on the magic fingers mm-hmm. in the in the hotel and then and then Mulder says oh I got another body and and uh, and she says, don't forget that this is my room and she <laughs> yells at him why do yeah. I have to go in there I haven't eaten anything don't you touch that bed yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and the different versions is different I also really like that. Um, we see like Mulder in Mulder's version he goes into all this detail of the history of vampires, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is very funny. Um, but then when he's uh, about to pass out from the from the drug and Ronnie the vampire is there to kill him, he he 
you know, takes his sunflower seeds and scatters them around. And, and you, you think that this is just a ridiculous kind of Mulder affectation, but it sort of saves his life, right? Because he scatters the seeds and the kid is like, oh man, did you have Not to sort do that? It, it does. Well, yeah, it does. Well, I mean, yeah, he's the star of the show, but it, it takes those ridiculous things that have sort of accreted over the years of, you know, this is what a vampire is. And, but, but the, the, the almost fake uh, myth of the vampire is important to the characters too, yeah. right? They're not necessarily the Bram Stoker vampire, but at least Ronnie believes he is. So whether or not that's a true thing that a vampire would have to pick them all up, Ronnie thinks he has to pick them all up. And Mulder, Mulder's knowledge gets to be useful and not just annoying, right? Yeah. Like it, it, yeah. He does mm-hmm. use it to save his life. And in One the end, I-, I mean, it's got a nice twist to it, right? In the end, they go back to the town and... um. Also, somebody has to explain to me the runaway RV that's going in a circle. That's just so strange. That whole thing is just so bizarre. The guy, the guy had vampire bites on his neck, and he, he yeah, fell, uh, yeah, fell over onto the wheel. He's leaning on the gas, and he pulled the wheel sideways, and it's just, yeah. going, and it's just going in a perfect circle and not hitting into anything until it runs mm-hmm. out of gas. I mean, considering this is Vince Gilligan, who went on to do Breaking Bad, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's he's got kind of a motif of shooting yeah. at out-of-control RVs, which is great. Um, but I, but I just love, you know, it's like, then we tried another tack and then you just see Mulder hanging off the back of the RV going, (laughs) (laughs) explains why he's so dirty. Ridiculous. Um, But then they go back to the town and, uh, and, and, and it is revealed that, uh, the sheriff and everybody at the RV park are also vampires that Ronnie is an idiot, but he's an idiot vampire. (laughs) He's one of ours. And so they basically knock them both out and pull up stakes and leave the town. And that's how the episode Get it. As it were. Uh, Well, you know. The other thing I noticed in this episode, which wasn't specific to this episode so much is, you know, going back to what John was saying about, wasn't it crazy that they used to have older actors on TV that weren't young and pretty? Wasn't it great? I miss the days when they weren't afraid to let actors be different heights. There were a couple of shots where you have <laughs> Mulder. Boxes, He's just yeah. towering over Scully. Yeah. And I know like in Doctor Who these days, they had uh, Jenna Coleman standing on a box anytime she was in a two shot with Peter Capaldi because he was just oh. that much taller than her. Like that's that's disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, yeah, it's good. It's it was a good pick, uh, David. I had completely forgotten this episode. Thank you. Well, and the other thing that I liked about it that that I wanted to bring up is is not just that, oh, it is. It's Vince Gilligan who went on to do Breaking Bad. But there are a lot of the seeds of the storytelling style of Breaking Bad in this episode, which aren't in a lot of his other episodes. The the sort of shifting time and shifting narrators and the balance of comedy and and utter seriousness. And, you know. and things going terribly wrong and people not yes. being competent when you expect them to be like, I can stop a runaway RV, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> what, could, what could go wrong? Yeah. It's a straightforward problem here. Uh, okay, let's move on to Triangle now. I chose Triangle... Um, having not seen it since it aired for, for a few reasons, but mostly because I feel like it represents a latter day X-Files episode in certain ways, which is ambitious, uh, trying to go off format, expensive. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, this is a good example of it. It was, I believe aired in widescreen, which mm-hmm. is h- hilarious now because they're all in widescreen now. <laughs> but at the time, it was aired in widescreen. Um, the other one that I almost chose for this is the postmodern Prometheus, which you may remember is the one with Cher in it, or at least the Cher song in it. Um, and, but and and it's that one's Frankenstein-y. But I I went with this one, which is the uh, it's a bunch of uh, continuous shots in 
uh, Alfred Hitchcock rope style. It is on a ship that that is uh, from 1939, but is, has been boarded by Mulder and a bunch of Nazis. Uh, and then there's a parallel story where Scully and Skinner and the lone gunman are trying to find Mulder. And it's all lots of steady cam panning around. It's very ambitious. It was written and directed by Chris Carter. I think in the latter day X-Files, you got a lot of episodes that were like this, where it was somebody has an idea and a vision and they, they p- kind of pull out all the stops for some special episodes. Not every episode was like this but i feel like they did a bunch of these um kind of like big production episodes once they got a a bigger budget and felt like they had uh figured everything out and they had no other worlds to conquer so they by gosh they were gonna make more work for themselves and try some uh things that maybe hadn't been done on tv before and that's what this episode is i'm glad you picked this one because i always felt like this i i wouldn't have maybe wouldn't have picked this one because i remembered it vaguely but watching it again it's so clear to me that at this point in the series they are just showing off. I don't know if they're yep. at the height of <laughs> yeah. their powers, but there are a lot of powers on display here. They have established oh, characters. Yeah. They have established tropes and storylines to lean on. They have a big budget. They have good writers. They have a good crew. They have actors that know their characters. They have, for this type of episode, which is a pseudo dream sequence episode, mm-hmm. they have an amazing cast of extended characters from the series so far to drop in as Nazis or scientists or yes. whoever, you know, or <laughs> crew members down under the thing. They can make... Uh, What's his name? Uh, Kirsch uh, have a, a, a terrible Jamaican accent and play for comedy to say trust no one, man. I mean, like it, it is seriously just showing off. And like in the context of season six, which is where the show started to go downhill, it's like, well, you know, you're losing it here. This is like one big last hurrah. Like get the band back yes. together and show we are amazingly talented people who know what the heck we're doing, and we're just going to do a fun episode. I love this thing. There is there is one moment in this, and you can probably guess what it is, so I won't say it yet. There is one moment in this that is maybe my favorite single 20 seconds in all of the X-Files. The, the split-screen hallway walk? Yep. Oh, yeah. Where they, where they cross, they yep, cross yep. into each other's split-screen. They're just and showing off. Like, we can do everything. That was just brilliant. Yeah, this, this, this episode was followed by the two-parter with uh, – with Michael McKeon and then, and then the Christmas episode with Ed Asner and Lily Tomlin, which again is the, we've just got money and cachet <laughs> and ratings and we're going to do it. And, and we're shooting in LA now. Yes. And I would actually argue that the, the Christmas episode with Ed Asner and Lily Tomlin is the moment where I thought, Oh no, it's, they've completely, they're, they're, they're doomed <laughs> now. Yeah. They, they are, they believe their own press releases, um, it's all sort of like sucking up to stars and, uh, but triangle is so stylish and, and, and it's and, so X-Files. It is so X-Files. It is. It's like, yeah. you know, it, is it all a dream? Was it all a dream? Probably all a dream, but even if it wasn't, that's fine. And like, I just love, like, since they have so many things to play off of, like the, the, the sort of the, the, uh, romance, but not really romance between Mulder and Scully, like they can pay that off in this episode by having him in case I never see you and grab her and give her a kiss. doesn't matter. Yeah. It's all a dream, right, it's guys? Dream. Like, you get to have your cake and eat it, too. Yep. It's, well, it's, then... it's filled with Wizard of Oz references. Yeah, yes. no, uh, the, whole, the whole theme. You know. yeah. And you were there. Uh, that's my favorite scene in that one is after the kiss where he goes in for the kiss and you know he's going to do it because it's a dream. It's like one of those things you would do in a dream. Then he gets punched and he, he throws his lips and he says, I was expecting a left. Because <laughs> the, the alternate universe, Scully, is, is not left-handed. Yep. That was great. That, that actually, good. this episode, I had forgotten about this one, and it, rewatching it, it reminded me 
of nothing so much as the episodes of Designing Women, where they are for some reason in a dance hall in the 1940s and Dixie Carter uh, yes. is singing songs and stuff. And I was like, it's the same. It's the same thing. Once you get to a certain point in your run, you feel like you can do whatever, whatever. you want. Mm-hmm. But I was I was glad you picked it just be, simply because it had the lone gunman in it. And they are probably yeah. my favorite <laughs> characters in all of X-Files history. And they're well, I think they're kind of well used here in that they're they're mm-hmm. they kind of swoop it. They they uh I would question the geography of the fact that if you take the if you take the elevator down to the basement of the FBI building, uh, well. that there's a that your van can be idling in the building and roll on out. But regardless, they uh, <laughs> they they get they save Scully and they they care about they're they're a good plot device in here and they get a couple of good that, moments. That's it's an just underrated f- section of this thing. The the office you always everyone remembers the boat part, right? Oh, the boat is so stylish right. and they're back in the past and there are Nazis and that's the big thing, but. Obviously, they cheated. It's not really one continuous shot. Sure. But like the the, the office just scene, rope isn't her, either. Her, well, yeah. yeah, all those her, hallways, all those elevators. Yeah, yeah, plenty of places to do cuts. But but like that whole office scene of her, like she's basically battling bureaucracy, yeah. and they make it exciting mm-hmm. and tense and and funny. I'm serious when I say all those elevators and all those hallways because that that actually is super tense when she goes into the into the elevators and and doesn't. But also go to the, funny, like she goes into the office, her, her first boss, and she's a stupid, stupid. Goes into the second. <laughs> The cigarette smoking man is in the corner. It's like, oh, jeez, yeah. what am I even doing here? And goes and yells at what's his name in the basement. Spender, and goes right, right to the boss, and she's going to mm-hmm. kill him. And- I think overall, my favorite part of the episode was was just watching Scully, simply because it was it was such a strong character piece for her. I mean, yeah, it was funny to see her running around, but I just liked the fact that she was the one that was that was being active and in charge. And I have always loved it when Scully had to sort of take control and and get them out of something or save Mulder's bacon. Like that yep. was my favorite. favorite part of the show quite often and this was this was that in a very bureaucratic sort of way and and again it's not that she's just running back and forth to different things she's thinking the whole time and yep, she's changing she's her strategy and, and i mean it's beautiful to watch the 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 thing with this is you have four 11 minute acts and they you know they did all of it with steady cam to try yeah. and mimic that style but a steady cam at that point could only have four minutes of footage so they had to cheat even if they didn't want to uh, but the cheating is so nicely done. Again, yes. you know, it's like these slow pans across door frames, and whoop, now it's the next yeah. cartridge. And of They use the, the dark in a few places on the ship. Yeah. They use the dark as a, yeah. as as cover, mm-hmm. and of course, yes, the swirl, the swirls around in the elevator are used at a few points, and and uh, it it is it is stylish. I I feel like the script is not as strong as the other episodes we watched, but I feel like it's 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 ambition. And the look of it and the obvious cost is the reason why it's a good representative of uh, this is when they've they've. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Height of their powers can do anything. And like I said, they're making things more difficult for themselves because they can. (laughs) Why not? Just to keep it fair. Even the dorky writing, like because of the premise, because this is uh, essentially the most plausible theory. This is all in Mulder's head because it's totally a Wizard of Oz. Like it's it's dorky in a way that when you're again, when you're the star of your own dream, this is how things play out. There are Nazis, and the people you dislike are the bad guys, except for your <laughs> boss, who actually turns out to be a good guy. And and your lady pal is there, and this is the time you're actually going to kiss her. Even when he, even at, like at the end of the episode, when he wakes up in the hospital and he finally says, "I love you," like all mm-hmm. of the you know, uh, you know, uh, Scully uh, Mulder shippers are like, "Oh, they're going to kiss and say I love you." They do it both in this episode, and she's like. Oh, brother, and rolls her eyes and just walks out because she's all doped up. Remember, you were drugged. I was drugged. I was one of those shippers. I was punching the air. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Oh. 
Now, we should probably talk about what happened at the end of this uh, series because it did, it did, um, it did kind of, so it went nine seasons. Uh, it did kind of fall off a cliff quality wise, although I th- I would argue that there are good episodes in every season. Yes, um, that's true. In- yes. Including some good episodes with uh, as so David Duchovny wanted to be less involved. So he get he moves the production to L.A. and then after a couple of years is like, yeah, I'm kind of over it. So rather than write them out completely, um, first Mulder and then Scully had a reduced episode load as time went along. They would come back from time to time. Scully was kind of uh, mentoring the agents who were assigned to the X-Files, which were uh, Doggett and Reyes, uh, who, who actually Annabeth Gish and uh, Robert Patrick, I, mm-hmm. I think, did a perfectly good job. As as those characters, I think, in fact, I believe I said this on one of our uh, one of our previous episodes when we were talking about re about reboots of old shows. I mentioned that I thought they could reboot the X-Files. I think the premise of the X-Files is great. I think the problem with with the Doggett and Reyes years was that the writers were tired, not that they that the characters and those actors didn't do a decent job. But over time, you know, you lost Mulder and Scully in that dynamic. You obviously were working around their schedules to get them back. You had this kind of played out mythology that they were still trying to kind of keep spinning as much as they could. And it just, you know, nine seasons of 22 episodes each of a show like this, it's just kind of got crushed under its own weight. I think. And that's that's kind of the problem with the mythology, too, is that Mulder and Scully were so tied into it. They were so central to what was going on with the mythology that, you know, in Law and Order, yeah, you can pretty much swap out detectives and, you know, it's just, I like Jerry Orbach. I like Paul Servino. You know, it's like, that's how you watch the show. Uh, if you just like the stories, you watch the stories. But this, uh, Mulder and Scully were so central to the overarching thing. They were the story. Yeah. And and so when they're not there, uh, yeah, I mean, Doggett and Reyes are fine. I, it, it's a fine show, and there are that's some a, really that's, good that's a new show, episodes. and they got to have their own stories. Like, exactly. fine. you want to make a spinoff show with new people who are on the X Files? That's fine, but they need their like they need to be. If you really want to do that, they need to be as tied into the to the new arc. Now, a continuation of the old one, but because exactly. they tied up, they tied up so many loose ends by by around season six. They had a very natural ending to the series. Everything you really cared about had been either solved or, or shown to be something you're never going to know. Everyone's like internal struggles and relationship and character arcs were all pretty much nailed down. And then they're just like, well, we just got to kickstart this sucker again and send them off onto new arcs. And it's almost a blessing that the leads left because there's no, they had nothing left to give. Like regular people have you know, one life to live or whatever that uh, soap opera was. Like you yeah. don't get to have 17 <laughs> different lives unless, you know, maybe you're David Bowie topical but uh with the new characters i thought they were good too and i was actually surprised by how they were able to construct basically a good x-files episode with these new people because they're good actors and uh they had interesting stories every once in a while but but they never restarted an arc that i cared about and that's really what killed it better to have Mulder and scully just be gone right yeah and say that story is over it's it's me i'm still here i'm missing you should care about finding me for some reason Eh." right so then doggett and reyes are just left left holding the bag go go off and do x-files new orleans once in a while you might have a guest shot you know, and, and then you have, uh, you know, X-Files Miami over here. And That's actually my disappointment about LA. the re- about the relaunch is uh, is that it's just uh, bringing back 
uh, Mulder and Scully for six episodes, and and that'll be fun. But I I am a believer in this as a premise, and I'm kind of disappointed that they didn't instead do a new X Files with new characters and try to you know because I I think there's so much power in this premise. Well, so maybe they may they yet could yeah exactly yeah, maybe they will one day. Yeah, that's they're they're not going to promote this as hey this is a whole new thing. They're going to promote this as ah see it's Fox and and Dana they're back yeah they're back. It's so. nice. 4D is an episode I wanted to mention from the last season as an example. Like, I think that's a pretty good episode. And that is that's the parallel universe episode where there's like a killer, but the killer is is going back and forth between it's sort of like a proto fringe uh, back and forth between our universe and a parallel universe. And they have to follow him to the parallel universe. I thought it was actually kind of a really great, uh, great episode that is lost because it's in season nine and who cares <laughs> at that point. But uh, yeah, nobody did. I, I was, I was kind of a defender of, of Doggett and Reyes, um, mostly because like you guys said they they were fine characters i actually enjoyed them i thought their performances were really good i do agree that the stories were were less exciting it was it was it felt very very sort of rote and by the book monster of the week they didn't there wasn't a whole lot drawing you back but everybody just got so rabid and just vile towards these poor actors and and these characters which i thought were just fine so i i found myself i think i liked them extra much simply because all these people were were bagging on them so hard and and i felt like like somebody needed to love them so that was me well and whenever there's um uh, a story arc comes back, then Mulder and or Scully come back, right? So there, mm-hmm. it really is. They, I mean, they really were left holding the bag. They were filling in the episodes that if you were if you were there to see Mulder Scully in the ongoing story, they their episodes did not provide those things. No. And that, Whereas I, I would get annoyed when when Scully and Mulder would come back. I, I agree because yeah. it just it felt so insincere at that point. It just mm-hmm. didn't it just didn't work. It was like, oh, okay, well, I'm supposed to care about these other characters, and yet you keep bringing them back. I agree that that a spinoff would have been would have been a lovely thing, especially if they would have gotten a new stable of writers. Yes, exactly right. Um, we should talk before we go. Um, two feature films were made, one during the run of the show, uh, which was problematic because they essentially had to shoot the movie and then spend the next season writing <laughs> up to the point which would lead mm-hmm. into the movie. Yeah, which it's like I, Marvel nowadays, right? Yeah, and it kind of—it's it, exactly what Agents of Shield has to do, actually, and it, it kind of put the plot in uh, stall tactic mode for a season, which is not good drama because they <laughs> knew where they needed to be. Be uh, they couldn't change their plan because they had just told the story that was going to be in the uh, in the feature film. So that was that was the the first one, and then that was Fight the Future, right? Right. And then they did um they did I want to believe in uh in uh, 2004 Eight. 2008, right. Much surprisingly a long time passed and they did I want to believe which uh I have to admit I have never seen it. Me either. You're not missing anything. I, I, even the first movie didn't work that well. Like uh, this yeah. show just doesn't yeah. work. I don't know if it doesn't work in movie form, but they did two movies and neither one of them captured anything that I really loved from I'm pretty sure I stuff. saw it. And I cannot remember a thing. I'm not even 100% sure I did see it. So yeah. there you yeah. go. Well, yeah. I, I did see it. And I I don't remember much about it other than that I was bored and disappointed. I don't know. I, I think it's telling about how this how this series ended. And, and one of the things that I've liked about revisiting it is it's actually gotten me excited about the about the, the six episode uh, miniseries revival thing, which, by the way, I think it's really cool that they're doing that because 
I've complained on this podcast actually numerous times that if you get a good show and everybody loves it, um, you know, bring it back every now and then. That happens in British TV all the time where they bring yeah. something back for a special or for five episodes or something like that. And they actually did it where they're like, how, how long can we get David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson? Because they're very busy with other things. And the answer was they could do six episodes worth. So they, they ordered six episodes of the X-Files. How great is that? But I'm much more excited about it now, having revisited these classic episodes, because the fact is, yeah, it kind of fell apart at the end. And I left with bad feelings about the X-Files. And this process really... Really reminded me of how I mean, legitimately great this show was for a long time before it started to fall apart. And for so many episodes, like uh, again, I was you know I thought I thought uh, thir- episode thirteen was the end of season one. They just made so many episodes. It was they, they turned they was just an hour long show. Hundred and two episodes, it's like the plus Simpsons. two feature films. It's amazing. Wow. You know, Chris Carter. I actually. Um, I would actually file Chris Carter along with Gene Roddenberry and, and George Lucas as somebody that I think perhaps um, had some luck involved in creating this amazing thing and and now has has control over it. And I've heard through people um, in in. Well, how should I put this? Like Tim, talking to Tim Goodman on on the TV talk machine, I definitely get the impression from him that the, there is a feeling like that, that one of the impediments to bringing back the X Files is Chris Carter because Chris Carter wants to be intimately involved with it, and that's problematic because he is um, infamous for making some bad decisions and being really slow and missing deadlines and all sorts of things. So, I I I. I I hesitate to say that anybody is in the same category as George Lucas and Gene Roddenberry in terms of being a creator who ends up being an impediment to their own thing that they created. But I feel that way about him a little bit because in the end, I don't think that the most memorable episodes of the X-Files were done by Chris Carter. But what I like about this revival is Chris Carter is doing his episodes, but he brought back James Wong. He brought back Darren Morgan. He brought back Glenn Morgan. And apparently they asked uh, Vince Gilligan and they asked... um, uh oh who's doing the the man in the high castle frank spotnitz they asked they asked them to come back and they're and they're too busy basically with their other successful shows that they're doing but i like that that it's not just this thing is not just an ego trip a a lot of the other great kind of uh team members who came out of that show are coming back to do this thing and i hope it's i hope it's worth the time and, and energy that they're putting in it uh it'll be interesting to see uh, a show coming back after it's 14 years almost exactly because the second short, movie doesn't 14 exist 14 years we're not going to talk about that movie 14 <laughs> years since the <laughs> la, show la, was la, on fingers in my ears and now here's six episodes of the x-files this is kind of like the force awakens where you get Lawrence kasdan to come back you get the old cast to come back the the, yep. the creator i guess the creator's still involved with his yeah. own episode or whatever but uh, like, I, I feel like if it, to, i was talking to chris carter i would say have faith that the show, the premise, the style of television making that you created back then, that the people who are going to make these new six episodes understand that they are students in the school of, of the thing that you made. And like in this case, they're the actual same writers. Like uh, if if you establish something some as iconic as Star Trek, Star Wars or The X-Files uh, and you make either like a reboot of it or a continuation or whatever, like and you get the right people on it, have faith that they understand in their bones the thing that you made. It's not as if I need to be involved because I'm the only person who involves the X-Files. No, the whole generation of, of television writers and television viewers who understand the X-Files. So you just get the good ones, the talented ones. They will take care of your baby in in the way, at the very least, in the way that the people who love the original show also love. I say this yeah. having not seen these new six episodes, so maybe they'll <laughs> blow it, but I am cautiously optimistic. 
All right. So so the X Files returns to television. Oh, I cannot <laughs> believe that I'm saying that on uh, January 24th. Wow, crazy, crazy, it is mind crazy. blown. Yeah, it's uh, it's cool. Uh, I hope it does well because uh, bringing back shows that people like and doing short runs of them. I think it's a good idea. So we'll I will be interested to see if because there are a lot, lot of people who never watched the X-Files or didn't see much of it, uh, who will probably be watching this just because of all of the hype surrounding it. Um, and I will be interested to see how it plays to those people, if they're able to hit the balance, kind of like they did with with new Doctor Who bringing it back, where you can make the the classic fans happy enough and make it accessible enough that the the new breed of audience member can come in and and get it as well so one last round before before i wrap this up completely because i think that you made a good point there um we've mentioned four episodes that people could watch and and in passing have mentioned a few more before we go if there are particular episodes that you would recommend that people watch other than the ones that we've already mentioned i would be interested in hearing those, I guess I'll start um, and give you time to think since I didn't have you prepare this. Yeah. Um, I really, <laughs> I, I really like Squeeze, which is episode three, which I feel is, um, and it's got a sequel later on in the first season called Tombs. Th- these are, uh, it's like the X Files episode. Squeeze is. It's about a guy who eats people's livers and can squeeze in be- into really narrow spaces. That's what it's about. <laughs> That's all it's about. But it's kind of great. All of the Darren Morgan episodes, I think, are fantastic. Um, I think uh, I think Red Museum is an amusing episode because it's about uh, it's about cows. I believe it's set in Wisconsin, Erica, and it, <laughs> and, and, and there's mysterious uh, mysterious cow related murders. And it was meant to be a, a crossover with the David E. Kelly series Picket Fences, and that it was a cross network crossover, so they they canned it. But uh, it it, uh, it it's still kind of a kind of a cool episode. Um, already mentioned, uh, War of the Copperphages, the Darren Morgan episode, uh, and Jose Chung's from Outer Space. I I would say don't watch the ones with, uh, that were written by William Gibson as much as I love him as a writer, uh, because they're not very good. Uh, Small Potatoes is a very good episode written by Vince Gilligan and, uh, starring Darren Morgan, I believe. Uh, yeah, he's the, he's the star of that episode. The writer Darren Morgan is the star of that episode. So those are some that I think are worth, uh are worth watching. Uh, John, do you have any that we haven't, we haven't mentioned? I I looked up one because I thought you might have the segment and I have vague memories. The other ones, maybe you can tell me which episodes they are. The the first one uh, that that is one of my favorites that always sticks in my mind. It's very similar to all the episodes that we looked at, even though it's a mythology episode, because it relies on you having watched many seasons of this very interesting character to, it's a payoff to say, now we can do a different story with this character. And it's musings of a cigarette smoking man. I love oh, yeah. CSM. Yes. I yes. love that actor. I love how they used him. I love how yeah. he smokes his cigarette. I love everything about him. Uh, and in one episode, they take you back to, how did how did you end up with this guy? How does this guy, yeah, he's all creepy and everything, but how, you know, it's, it's what the Star Wars prequels could never do. How do you end up a cigarette smoking man? And it reveals him to be... A uh, you know they they flash back and they show all the terrible things he's done in the past, but that he has other ambitions and he wants to be a writer and of genre fiction, which is not taken seriously, right? And uh, <laughs> you know he, he's always wanted to do that, and he's writing tales that sound stupid and unbelievable, look like pulp trash, but they're basically 
based on real things, you might call them a Romana clay, of, of what he's actually done in his life, and they get rejected as ridiculous. Uh, and eventually gets gets a, a, a reply from, you know, uh, from a magazine saying, yes, we're going to publish your stuff as a serialized story. And he's so excited and he's ready to resign as the most terrible villain in the entire X-Files universe because finally he gets his dream and it turns out to be a nudie mag. Uh, and he is disappointed and he tears up his resignation and goes back to be a cigarette smoking man. That is like uh-huh. a, my idea of like a perfect mythology-connected, character-based, payoff-reward episode. The other episode that I can't find the title of, one and you can tell me, maybe it is Jose Chung's in our space. What's the one where the lone gunman played Dungeons and Dragons at the convention? There's oh. like a, it, I don't know involved... the name of it, but I second your... <laughs> yeah. And then there's that. miniatures and pewter dragons, but I, I can't think of the, the name of the episode. But the final thing, this is not a particular episode, but this is the one thing that struck me watching these four episodes again. I don't. I don't think I was in the camp that had like a super mega crush on uh, Gillian Anderson. For me, that was Danny Delaney and China Beach, aforementioned. But yes. uh, watching these episodes again and all, watching X Files the entire time, Dave Duchovny's fine. I like him. I like his character. Um, I cannot stop looking at her face. I don't know what it is about her as an actress when she is on the screen doing her acting thing. I cannot stop looking at her face. She is just the most entrancing actress. I love the episodes when she would, it sounds bad, where she was sad, where she where bad things would happen <laughs> to her, where she would get upset, where her dad dies, where she finds out she has cancer, where she's, she just, I don't know if she's really this great an actress, or maybe she she's, I haven't seen her in many other things, um, but she always just draws my eye, and I don't know what it is about her. It, you know, it just, that, she is magnetic, and uh, for me, you know her in this series is what like i had forgotten about it like i'd put it behind me or whatever but she's up on the screen and i just can't take my eyes off her so that's i'm going to endorse every episode with her in it three of a kind (laughs) is the name of the episode you were thinking of and it's uh by vince gilligan and john shuban and it is that's the one where they play dungeons and dragons it's a goofy funny one um david you have episodes i have episodes uh i again wholeheartedly recommend all of the darren morgan ones yeah um because, I mean, again, if if you know what I do, funny, spooky writing is right up my alley. So I love all of those. Um, I also, again, going back to Vince Gilligan and the Seeds of Breaking Bad, I would say the episode Drive uh, with Brian Cranston, which is season six. It's the beginning of season six. Uh, and it's kind of a, an X-Files version of the movie Speed where Brian Cranston has to keep moving or he, his head will explode. And of, I remember that one. Of course, he winds up in a car holding Mulder hostage, making Mulder drive west. And it's amazing. And he, he is not at all, you know, if, if at this point people knew him as either Seinfeld's dentist or the dad from Malcolm in the Middle. Right. And, you know, this this was the episode that Gilligan looked back at and said, I know who to cast in this this Breaking huh. Bad thing. He could pull that off because he is a horrible person in this. And yet you still feel sympathy for him because Brian Cranston's that good. Huh. Um, I would also say the postmodern Prometheus. Sure. Yeah, which, you know, that's it's just it's again, it breaks the formula enough. Uh, and that is the subtitle of Frankenstein. Yes, that's you know, it's it's uh, much as young Frankenstein is a is just a pitch perfect spoof of the original Frankenstein films. This does the same the same kind of thing. And, and as I recall, it uses the same props from both those the original movie and Young Frankenstein, which is kind of cool. Um, 
the episode Ice in the first season, which that might be the one that hooked me fully. That's a great episode. It is a great episode. It is a beautiful riff on the thing, thing, but the original thing. Who who goes there? Um, So that is just that that was the one where i went okay these guys know what they're doing and even then they're kind of showing off because it's not just you know hey we'll trap them in the thing it's like no we're doing the thing we're doing who goes there erica i'll translate that that's the seeds of doom yeah i was i was thinking the very same thing i was like the truly great science fiction shows do a a thing episode they have to they do yeah yeah and then i'm I'm actually going to pick a season nine episode um, which kind of breaks breaks some of what we were saying because it's got a big name guest oh, I star. I mentioned 4D. It was good. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. No, that was really good too. Uh, this one has a big name guest star. It's it's a little weird. Uh, it's it's called Improbable, and it has Burt Reynolds. Who oh yeah, might be God. And what I really like about it is that Doggett stays back in the office, and it's Scully and Reyes teaming up to to solve this problem, which. That was that was something we hadn't seen in this before either, uh, and and yep. so yeah, it's a little weird episode that you don't expect that late in the run. Yeah. Erica, well, as I said, I'm terrible with with names and even remembering specific episodes. But as yeah. we've been talking about it, some things have come back to me. Um, I will I will say that I I do love the Lone Gunman. So many of my favorite episodes were theirs. And just looking it up, I didn't realize just how many episodes they were in. They were in a lot. A lot. Yeah. Um, so th- one that I will point to that I do kind of remember is Unusual Suspects, which deals with sort of oh, their yeah. origins. I love origin stories, especially with quirky, wacky characters like those guys. So that that's a good one. Um, and if you like them and, and their series, uh, Jump the Shark is the episode that that offs them, which may be rewritten now exciting uh and yeah. i also I, I also second the uh the uh jose chung's from outer space that's another one that i definitely remember liking a lot and the michael mckean two-parter which you actually mentioned dreamland, earlier, Jason, right. dreamland and, and dreamland 2 which dreamland 2 has the lone gunman in it so it's you know mm-hmm. lots of bang for your buck yeah and I, I have one more that i'll throw in there which is an episode called pusher from season three written by vince mm-hmm. gilligan directed by rob bowman by the way who is the best star trek the next generation director and he became an X-Files director, which was pretty cool because he, he did like uh, the first episode with the Borg and he was a really good director. And I was very happy to see his name start popping up on the X-Files. Um, Pusher is about a guy who can make people see or not see things. And the reason that I mention it is because uh, when I used to be a commuter, I would have to cross a, a freeway on-ramp in order to get to my bus stop every morning. And every morning when I crossed the on-ramp, I thought of the episode Pusher where because the most terrifying thing in it is that uh he he made somebody not see an oncoming truck <laughs> and that's how they die is they step oh. in front of the truck because they didn't see it and i thought about that every time i crossed that freeway on ramp every <laughs> single time so job X-Files well done X files i guess so i guess mm. so or or kept me paranoid so good job Vince Gilligan all right the x files returns um, in, in uh, very, very soon, very soon. So I would like to thank my guests for revisiting this classic series. It was a lot of fun to to dip back in here. Uh, David Lore, thank you for being here. I I want to believe. <laughs> that's I just that's want true. to believe. That's true. Erica Ensign, thank you. Thank you. Now I'm I'm just excited to see Byers Langley and Frohickey again. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, John Syracuse said the truth is out there. Oh, we forgot to mention that I think in Clive Bruckman that's where she gets her little dog. 
her little dog that I believe oh, gets, yeah. gets eaten by mold in an evergreen forest in a later episode. Aww. <laughs> by the that's way, that's true. The, that this, they did the Hill Street Blue snow globe thing where really they're still trapped underground that's with that moss stuff and the same rest elsewhere. of the series. Same elsewhere. Yeah. Same elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. And the rest of the series yeah. is just hallucination. Anyway. Yeah, Buffy uh, well, Buffy is also just a, a girl in a mental institution. It happens. Yep. Mm-hmm. So anyway, anyway lots thanks, of good episodes John. and a little dog. Yeah. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. If you haven't, uh, you know, if you've gotten access to Netflix, they're all on there. They're in HD. It's pretty great. So, uh, you know, watch some episodes of The X-Files. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Truth is out there.